Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me at the other end of the line is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn, on this very, very hot summer day. Yes, yes, summer is upon us, summer is upon us. Yes, well, it is here in the U.S. I guess it's not summer on the other side of the world where our guest is today. Who do well, we have today? Not. Would you like to introduce our guest? <laughs> I would. Uh, our guest is Michael Thompson, the author of How to Be Remembered. And uh, it's quite a book, I'll tell you. Now, Michael Thompson <laughs> has been a successful journalist, producer, and media executive for the last 15 years. He now owns a pod- podcast production company and is the co-host of one of the highest-ranked podcast in Australia. He lives in Sydney with his wife and two young children. How to Be Remembered is his first novel, and he is talking to us from Australia. So this is really a, this is a first for us. <laughs> Welcome to Writer's Voices, Michael. Thank you both very much for having me. I'm very uh, excited to be here and looking forward to this and can confirm that it is very much colder here than it is where you are right now. We are uh, in the depths of winter right now, so it's it's a tad fresh. So you're talking about a heat wave and, and sweltering through temperatures, and I'm a little bit jealous right now. Oh, well, you know, when I was reading the book, How to Be Remembered, it took me a minute you know, it's like, why is he talking about it being hot in January? Oh, yeah, that's why. <laughs> that's, and that's one of the funny things that, that um, this book uh, was released first in Australia and then um, and then in the US and now kind of into other markets around the world. And, and I actually had to make that adjustment. I had to make that a, a slight change. Just a couple of paragraphs for uh for the US just to 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 establish that this is in fact set without kind of being too overt about it that it is in fact set in in the southern hemisphere uh, because otherwise um, largely the book it's not talking about specific places, so you wouldn't right. think it's kind of set in Sydney or it's set in kind of anywhere in, in Australia specifically. But the one thing that does stand out is that Christmas is very, very hot. Uh, and and for anyone reading that in the Northern Hemisphere, we go, what is going on? And so I just, there were a couple of extra paragraphs that I inserted into the uh, into the, the version for, for all kind of Northern Hemisphere markets, just to make that a little bit clearer as to why that was happening. So is yeah. the town where it was set, Upper Reach, is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Is that yes, not a real right. town? No, there are no real places uh, <laughs> in, in this book. Okay. Um, and and that was it was all quite deliberate because I wanted it to to feel like it could be anywhere, with the exception of that of that weather right, um, right. and the, the seasonal kind of bits, that I wanted it to be a quite universal um, that you could kind of take a lot of these these um, themes and the ideas, and and that it does play out pretty much anywhere, whether it is um, in a in a town in the states or, or a town in the UK or anywhere basically. That um, that uh, and as I find as soon as you identify it very firmly as being in an Australian town or a big chunk of the the book is set in in a, in a large city, um, which could be Sydney, but it could also be any other city really in the world Um, and and so that was all done all done quite quite deliberately Deliberately. to make it feel as relevant to anybody reading it so how to be remembered is um what what does it fit into any genre (laughs) 
It's uh, you know this is this is one of those questions that that even when I finished it, uh, um, uh, I, after I finished writing, I'm like, I don't actually know what it is that I've just written because it doesn't fit neatly into a into a particular genre. It is it is really kind of speculative fiction or magical realism, and and, and I mean the premise is is fairly kind of. Um, simple and that is basically that that it is about a young man named Tommy and uh every year on the same day his birthday everybody who knows him forgets that he exists and he just has to basically start again he's he remembers everyone but everyone who knows him his family his friends everyone just that he is wiped in their minds uh and and kind of all evidence of what he's done over the last year is gone and uh, and so he just has to start with a blank slate every year he's left with the clothes on his back basically yeah pretty much exactly (laughs) right and and so it, it then means that um, the, the book is about him essentially trying to have what the rest of us take for granted in terms of um, a, a family, relationships, a job, kind of the, the absolute basics that, that we can all go out and do, but he can't because of this thing that happens every year. So uh, the the thing about it is that it is very much set in the real world. It's I, I didn't want to kind of write... Um, uh, the genre was a difficult thing because it suddenly ends up as if you go into kind of too much detail as to why this is happening and it, you suddenly explain it as being kind of, oh, it's because of um, magic or robots or aliens or something like yes. that, then all of a sudden you're either going full on fantasy or you're going for science fiction or you're going for this, but it, it really is just, it is grounded in our world. It's in our lives and it is just picture an ordinary person in an ordinary life in an ordinary town and um, just one extraordinary thing is happening to him. Uh, and so a very, very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> the, the genre is a little bit kind of uh, mysterious. It's it's a little bit magical realism, a little bit speculative fiction, and, and kind of uh, along similar lines to, um, say, uh, The Midnight Library, Matt Haig, those kinds of um, – those that kind of vibe. Or I what I what it reminds me of is Benjamin Buttons. Absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah. yep, and yep, yep. Time Traveler's Wife, that kind of thing as well. Um, and so where it's very much kind of grounded. Yeah. Uh, and but but it also does make it a little bit hard to figure <laughs> out what shelf it goes on in the bookshop or in the library. Is it <laughs> is it going in kind of fantasy? Is it going in um, your speculative uh, fiction? Right. So where did it, where's it going? Do you know? <laughs> general, general fiction. General fiction. Okay. Okay. Which so, I think is very, a very generic kind of term. And I think it, <laughs> it probably suits in this particular case. Now, what kind of books do you read? I read a little bit of everything. I, I, um, I actually enjoy, um, quite a lot. I've, I am reading at the moment, I'm reading Yellow Face. Uh, it seems like everyone in the world is reading that at the moment. I'm, I've just finished um, Stephen King, Fairy Tale. Um, and I've just actually finished a run of very uh, um, uh, almost quite sad books as well, kind of and a few romantic comedies and things. There's one coming out in the, uh, in the States um, in a few months' time, I believe, called uh, The Last Love Note. Uh, which is by another Australian author, Emma Gray, which is which is a, a beautiful book. Uh, it is a um, it's a romantic uh, comedy. Another one by an Australian um, author, uh, Diane Yarwood, is called The Wakes. Um, again, um, just some really kind of it's a quite a broad kind of range. Um, I enjoy uh, 
things by say uh, Sally Hepworth as well, another Australian author who's had a, a lot of success um, internationally. Um, so it it really is quite um, quite broad. I don't think I, I, I limit myself to one particular uh, genre. Um, because there's just there's just so many good books out there. Now, uh, there's a whole bunch of things to talk about. One is Australia publishing in Australia. So I'm assuming Australia has its own publishing companies, and then yes. when you so you go there first, and yep. then if you're successful there, do does your publishing company take it? international or how does that work for you okay so the it's it's quite a similar process to uh, i think anywhere else in the world with the exception of it is a little bit easier in australia to approach a publisher directly uh that that i know in say in the u.s that you essentially you do need to have a literary agent to uh represent you uh to to uh, engage with a publisher in australia it is still generally the way you do it is that way, but there are a few more avenues to to kind of getting published. But I, I did decide that I wanted to go down the, the, the agent uh, route because I am a first-timer. I have no idea about anything, and so I don't know how anything works. I don't know who anyone is, and I really needed somebody to hold my hand uh, through the whole process. And so I was very fortunate to find a uh, fantastic agent, and, and there's it, it – it, it came with a, a fair few rejections along the way. And, and it's a fairly, um, I think that's a, a fairly common story, isn't it? That uh, along the way, trying to find an agent, I think there was 42 rejections oh my. Um, along the way, which, which can get a little bit, um, a little bit demoralizing at times. Like it's, it's particularly kind of when you just, when, when the, the, the knockbacks keep coming. Okay, all right. I'm going to stick with this. I'll just keep going. I will. I will get there eventually. Um, and it's and it's very easy to appear very optimistic and very resilient in hindsight. But at the time, it's like, oh wow, these these hits just keep on coming, don't they? And and so um, I decided I wanted to um, to to find an agent, and I ended up finding a, a fantastic agent, um, Catherine Drayton at Inkwell Management, who's, who's kind of based, uh, Inkwell's based in, in New York, um, but Catherine actually works between Australia and the US, so perfectly positioned ah. to work with, with someone like, someone like yes, me. Yes. And, and, it's, and it's extraordinary um, that uh, you can go from kind of 42 rejections and then end up in, a, in an auction. For the for the rights for well, a book, doesn't that just show that how subjective it is? It, it obviously That's, does, and I got to tell you, of you know, we've been doing this show for um, going on seventeen years, and one of the early shows that we did was with some of the early writers of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Oh and wow! Oh yeah! They were rejected what a hundred times or something. Yeah. Before they found yeah. their publisher, <laughs> and and that publisher that accepted them, it made them. It made the company. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so. There, there are some extraordinary stories, aren't there? And, and it does, oh, and yeah. it shows you just just how subjective the industry is, and that it just might not be the right book on the right day for that particular person. It doesn't mean that it's a bad book, um, and it, it, it's just a matter of finding the right the right person, the right champion for your for your material and so uh, so essentially then um, uh, in Australia there was a um, there was a number of publishers uh, interested in 
how to be remembered. And so it, it went to auction here and we ended up with Alan and Unwin, which is a, a very kind of well-established, um, one of Australia's oldest um, publishers and largest uh, largest publishers. And so that was fantastic. came out, uh, we started going through that process, but within a couple of weeks of, of doing that deal in Australia, then... Uh, Catherine took it to uh, took the manuscript to the US, and that's when it was um, picked up in a preempt deal uh, by Sourcebooks, um, which was actually a two book deal, which is fantastic then because it means <laughs> then you've got the the opportunity, and um, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to to then start writing your second book, knowing that there is actually already a market potentially for it. That is fantastic. Uh, which is, Oh, and and it, it just changes the way that you write because suddenly there's not this, this. you're not writing entirely on spec. You're not just writing going, oh, I hope that someone will be interested or someone will pick this up. You at least know that at the end of writing that there is a team, a fantastic team at Sourcebooks there who are going to work with me on this manuscript in order to get it to that um, to that point. So it changes, changes everything. So that's kind of the, the process that Australia and, and the US are quite quite similar and so we did Australia then the US and then from there um, some of the, uh, the the foreign rights markets um, uh, uh, German Italian Portuguese Arabic um, <laughs> and Polish and Czech at this oh stage have all um, have have sold as well which I think kind of probably speaks to as well I like to think that it speaks to kind of how universal some of these the themes are in this book that it is not just a book about um, that, that is set in Australia or that it is not just a book about a, a young guy. It is a, it is a book about kind of the human how condition. to be remembered. <laughs> it, it, is about, it is about how to leave a legacy, which yeah. is something I think that, that we all think about at some point is how we want to be remembered uh, and, and what happens if you can't be remembered. Uh, like how do you actually do this and what are those things in life that actually mean something and are going to stick around after you're gone? And so I think those things are the same regardless of whether you're in Australia or, or in the US or in Italy or, or, or anywhere, basically. Well, I bet there are 42 agents right now who are kicking themselves. <laughs> yeah, I bet there is too. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, but I was, in the end, I just I just consider myself so fortunate to have found the the right person, because and in the end, you just kind of know straight away that that as soon as you find that 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 agent and and Catherine is just has such good. Uh, feedback and so many good insights into the book and and provided me with the best kind of early feedback on how to be remembered and um, really kind of it is a book that has the potential to be when I when I, I kind of gave that little little summary before it, it makes it sound as though it's going to be quite depressing that it sounds like it could be quite grim because it's a it's a boy is, is forgotten every year and that sounds awful considering it, the first the first chapter is about him being forgotten on his first birthday by his parents who loved him and then forgot who he was and so they gave him oh, up. I know that was that was so sad. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, the book. If you were to open the book and only read the first chapter, you go, "This book is grim, and this is going to be a really depressing read." And it is not. It is a. It's actually a very kind of hopeful, very positive, very optimistic kind of story, and and that that's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that Catherine was really the person who kind of pointed that out, said that because I wrote it during the pandemic and, and during the, the kind of the depths of, of COVID lockdowns and things. And she, she made the point really that, that we don't need books that are, that are um, 
that are depressing. We can look out the window right now <laughs> if we want depression. Yeah. That, that what if if we we want optimism and we want a little bit of a bit of hope. And so I'm like, okay, that is what I can do with this with this book. Do you think that maybe that the, because it starts out so grim, maybe be why some people passed on it at first? Potentially, yeah, yeah. It's, that's actually a really good point. You're, yeah. you're probably right that um, that they didn't maybe get far enough into it, and and I understand that because um, I can only imagine how many submissions a lot of people would receive, and so they'd maybe see the first couple of pages and go, "Wow, this is grim." Yeah, and, yeah. and away it goes. <laughs> like, no, no, keep reading, keep reading. It's um, but and you kind of accept that that is the way it's the way it's going to go. But in the end, I just I, I need to kind of now focus on. Um, I, I found the right person, right. and now right. I now I kind of keep on moving. And the fact then that the um, that the 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 book's been optioned for film and everything as as well, which all kind of came about through kind of the, the this process of events, this chain that just kind of started happening one after the other. And you kind of, as a debut author, you just kind of pinch yourself, going, "This this is extraordinary. This is just this is the kind of thing that you dream about happening." Um, but you don't actually think that it that it will, and just one by one, just kind of been ticking this this bucket list, this publishing bucket list along the way. Like, this is this is amazing. This is just, this is extraordinary. So now you're writing your second book on contract. Now that is has a plus, like you said, but there's also the downside, which is a deadline. Or maybe that's a plus for you. <laughs> I, I like deadlines. I mean, my background is journalism. My background is is radio. And you deal with very, very tight deadlines. You are typically looking at kind of hour-long deadlines or, um, or kind of producing content by the minute kind of thing. So <laughs> so suddenly dealing with it with a deadline that's a few months away, it's like, oh wow, what am I gonna do with all this time? Uh, it's, so it's um, so i I have finished um the uh, well I'm I'm probably a couple of three drafts in, I think, to the um to the second manuscript and, and working with source books now on the revisions. Uh, now is it, it a just, sequel or is it completely different? It is standalone. It is a, a standalone book, a similar genre, okay. which is, uh, again, I say that now knowing that we have not been able to define the genre. So when I, I say it's, it's similarly genreless. It's similarly it's, confusing. Um, exactly, exactly. No, it's, it's, it is still that kind of grounded speculative fiction um, okay. where you kind of take an, an ordinary person and you just tweak one little thing. And and for me, I think that's, that's enormously... Um, fertile ground kind of thing for stories because I just, I don't know how thriller writers or crime writers uh, kind of come up with new and inventive crimes and new murders and, and new <laughs> motives and new suspects. And for me, I, I couldn't think of anything because it, it seems like there is just a limited number for me in every scenario there, it would be like the, the, the butler did it um, because I, I, I with, can't think with of anything With a knife new. in the library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and anyone reading goes, well, we picked that in chapter two. We knew that was coming. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but for me writing in this, kind of ambiguous genre is is great because you can play around with it you can be quite creative but the key to it is i believe look at me talking with authority after one book <laughs> uh, the, the key to it i think is that it has to be credible you've got to you've got to kind of um if you are sticking to to a set of rules that you create in the book then you've got to stick to them 
then they've got to act. You've got to give the the book and and the way it plays out some credibility. Um, and, and by doing that, I think the way to do that is just to to um, make it as firmly grounded in real life as you can. And if you tweak one thing, then that thing has to be consistent the whole way through. And, and I don't want anyone kind of going into how to be remembered thinking that that you're going to get a big grand explanation for why it's all happening. Um, that that the, no, the you reset don't. for you every don't get year. it, but no. you don't. I mean, I when I finished it, it was it wasn't like I'm. Well, why didn't he explain how this happened? It didn't matter. No, no, and and I think <laughs> that you can get bogged down in that kind of thing. Yeah. That you can get bogged down in trying to explain why this is happening, and and in the end, it's almost a case of all right, if we can agree between us that every year on his birthday, Tommy is forgotten, and I'll stick to that the whole way through. And if, if you kind of can suspend your disbelief and accept that that is happening, then we'll kind of look at how it plays out for him. Uh, and it's more about the relationships. It's more about um, the, the impact that it has on him as a person and his life and the people around him rather than trying to kind of get bogged down in finding an explanation for it. Because that is, I think, when you do end up with um, having to come up with something that, that is probably going to sound um a little bit far-fetched in some cases because there are not really many realistic reasons why someone is going to be forgotten every year on their, on their birthday. Um, and, and I think that you could work too hard to try and come up with a reason. And You're, so it's almost better to go, there isn't one. Let's accept it. Let's just focus on the characters and the relationships. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Michael Thompson, author of How to Be Remembered. I was going to ask you if, are any of the people, uh, the characters in the story, are any of them uh, real friends of yours or people that you know, or are they all? <laughs> they're all they're all made up. I, I think they're all made up. It's probably a question more that you need to ask kind of my friends and family and stuff. Do they recognize themselves in any of the characters? Because I think that's the thing that don't you, you think that you're writing kind of entirely new people and, and then suddenly people recognize little bits of their own character in this going, well, you've taken that from me and, and this is clearly based on me. But no, I've tried to, I believe they are all, uh, all original. Um, and I suppose kind of, um, Tommy as the, as the lead character is a, he is a very optimistic person. He is, he is, um, the, the world's most resilient optimist, um, because the, the circumstances of his life are pretty horrific. Um, to be forgotten every year on his birthday is pretty, um, it's pretty tough and it would, and it would get you down and it does get him down at, at times. And there, there's kind of periods, particularly during adolescence when he is um, really kind of struggling with that. But I wanted him to be a very optimistic, very, um, very resilient person who was able to kind of keep um, uh, coming back from that. And I think we probably all know someone who is like that. I'm um, guessing that you're pretty optimistic. I, I I am yes. I think you probably need to, don't you, in order to kind of put yourself out there yes, like this. Yes. Just go. You know what? I'm going to do this, and everything's going to be okay. Um, and so I, I think that would be. Um, though I've got to say, uh, Tommy, the character, is a lot more handy than I am. Kind of some of the things that he does in there, in terms of um, kind of the the the. Uh, those little changes that he makes along the way, fixing things. And, and I couldn't do that. I, I, could, I cannot fix anything around the house. My DIY 
uh, disasters kind of are, uh, are many, 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 many. So, uh, so it's certainly not necessarily based on me, but I, I like this idea of the optimistic, um, resilient character. The lead, having a protagonist that people really want to root for, I think mm. is, is quite important, um, that, that he's mm-hmm. an endearing kind of character. So, uh, I, I, I don't know. Caroline, I don't know whether I really answered your question there about whether it's, it, it is, it's, it's not really based on people that I, that I know, but I think it's kind of based on people that you'd want to know. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Right. I agree. Yeah. So Michael, where did the concept for a boy who's forgotten every year on his birthday, where did that, did you like get this idea and like, I have to write this book or did you say, I'm going to write a book and then you start writing this character and this, and this idea comes to you during the writing. No. So it, um, it came about because I'd, I'd been working in radio for uh, 15 years or so. And that finished up, I finished up in the, this uh, job that I'd been at, at a media company in Australia at the end of 2019, uh, in about November of 2019. And, um, I thought I'll, I'll take a couple of months off um, over Christmas. There's, uh, not much happens for about six weeks in Australia over the Christmas New Year period. Everything is very, very dead during that period here. Um, and so I thought I'll take that period to kind of reset and, and then I'll look for a, a new job in, say, February of 2020, which... As history shows us, is a terrible time to start looking for a new job because there were zero new jobs yes, yes, out there. Yeah. And so during that time, I um, I uh, said to my wife, I think I, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always, I've always, my background is journalism, so I've done a lot of writing, but it's always been um, factual content. You're essentially you're writing news stories and you're writing very short form, 200 words, 300 words, and trying to convey maximum amount of information in as short a period as possible. And you are just relaying exactly what's what you're seeing happening over here and you are uh, accounting for it here. Uh, and, and that's it. And so I thought I want, I've always wanted to write a book. I didn't think I'd get an opportunity to do it probably until I retire. Um, and, and maybe then I'll be able to sit down and devote the time that, that you need to, to do it. Um, but then this kind of gap, employment gap, I suppose you call it, <laughs> it came up in the, um, in, in there. And I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and, and start writing this. Uh, and I'd had this idea uh, that had, had um, come into my head a few weeks before I started writing. So just at the end of 2019, um, and I've been thinking about social media for one of the, the, the things that I've been thinking about social media and, and a lot of the content that people post online on say Instagram or and, and photos on Facebook and things that they would probably, they, they post when they think it's a good idea. And in the future, maybe even the next morning, they decide that it is not necessarily <laughs> a good idea to have posted what they posted. Uh, but uh, once it's there, it's there. It's part of your digital footprint. You can delete it, but it, it, it's a trace of it probably remains somewhere. And I, I was thinking, imagine how many people are out there that would just love to be forgotten. They would just love to have their, kind of their, their, their entire footprint erased entirely. And then I don't know how, but the, the, the opposite kind of occurred to me, which was uh, what if it, what if somebody just wanted to be remembered and they, they uh, were unable to be because of something big, something that prevented that from happening. And it just kept on happening constantly. And, and that if it built up enough that they were able to establish a bit of a life for themselves, 
play across a year and then it reset. I thought, oh, that sounds pretty tragic. That sounds like a pretty good story. Uh, and so uh, the, the other part of it was that I had just finished work after at one company for 11 years and you, you, you spend so much time in one job and your job kind of becomes part of, of who you are and you start to be, you start to kind of think that you're, you are kind of irreplaceable, that, um, that you are, I suppose, important to the, the whole kind of place functioning. And then you leave that job and at, at five o'clock on that Friday, the phone stops ringing, the emails stop, com- <laughs> stop coming. And then at nine o'clock on Monday morning, someone else is sitting at your desk doing your job and the entire place continues on. As oh, wow. though you were never even there, and, and and that was me being professionally forgotten, and and which was which was all fine. It, that is entirely normal in the way that these in the way that things work. When you do leave a job, typically the business kind of moves on around you, and, and so suddenly I'm like, oh, okay, okay. The, the the legacy that I thought I was leaving, the way I was going to be remembered through the work I was doing, really didn't count for that much. And I think those kind of those thoughts, yeah. I I have never had that experience because because I have been an entrepreneur my whole life. I've started all the companies that I that I've been involved with, and and so far I haven't. I mean, we did. I did sell one off, but the other, you know, the other one, my main one, I'm, you know. Still there, so it's like that. Well, in that in that case, this this will be a somewhat foreign concept. Yeah, it never even occurred to me. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it it and it hadn't occurred to me either until all of a sudden it 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 did it, it, it happened. happened. And then and then I'm like, okay, all right. So this is kind of what it feels like to be to be forgotten. And, and those themes, I think, did then play into this. And I suppose I'm I'm only in my. Uh, mid to late thirties. Um, and uh, so it's probably quite young to be thinking about kind of what's your legacy? What's your, yeah, how do you want yeah. to be remembered? Yeah. Um, but I think that kind of experience made me consider that a little earlier than one might normally do in their life. So you were the executive producer of the nationally broadcast Ray Hadley morning show, which I thought was interesting because my name is yes. Monica Hadley. Um, Potentially related. <laughs> uh, to my ex-husband. But, <laughs> but um, so. It feels like we could be going into uncomfortable territory <laughs> no, here. No, so no, I'll... no, no, no. It's fine. So, um, but so who is Ray Hadley and what kind of show was this? Uh, so it's it is uh, talkback. It is talk radio, um, news talk. So it's it's a, a show with a lot of politics and a lot of um, uh, it's it's a very popular program in Australia um, across a number of cities and a, a number of states, um, and it is one of the most kind of successful radio shows in the in the history of of kind of Australian radio. And how did you um, get into radio? Well, because I studied journalism at university and because I always wanted to be a journalist. I loved writing, um, but at that point I thought what I loved was writing news and, and, and I did. I really enjoyed that and all of a sudden I kind of found um, 
the path I was following was one that was kind of leading towards radio and producing radio, which is such an, an unusual job because it is behind and no one ever really understands what it is. It is behind the scenes. You are essentially, uh, you are writing stories, you're organizing interviews, you're writing kind of interview uh, questions. You're, you're doing, um, you're having a lot of conversations with a lot of people. You're investigating stories, you're kind of tracking down information. And so it's quite thrilling. And, and then when you when you go to air when the when the program starts and you have three hours of um, of content to fill and it is just <laughs> in this particular case Ray Ray Hadley on air on his own for three hours and there's a, a, a kind of a small team of, of producers working behind the scenes but it is a lot of content to fill and all of a sudden the board lights up with with calls coming in from all over the place and and people reporting different stories happening here and there and breaking news and it's it is absolutely thrilling it is it is an extraordinary <laughs> kind of thing to do and I and I absolutely loved my time there and 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 so that was kind of how I I ended up in that, and then I moved from that show into um, into kind of an executive role in the company, and and kind of overseeing content uh, across the across the network. And, and so that was what I was doing for probably the final three years before I before I left the the company. Now there. Caroline had a long career in radio. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and she had a daily show in our local small town Fairfield, Iowa station, and then later at a different station down in Burlington, Iowa, a weekly show there. But so she had a daily talk show and also did some DJing and wrote oh, a lot of ad copy. And so you want you to... Need to be very versatile, <laughs> very, very versatile. And that's, and that's probably the best example of it, kind of writing ad copy as well as kind of talking and as well as DJing yeah. and potentially music and things. So it's just, it is a very versatile kind of job. And, and, and if you go into that, you need to be prepared to do a whole lot of different things. And she was the voice talent for the commercials too. Right, Mom? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So... Um, but the one thing is, at least in the U.S. at that time, at least in small town, and I think for most people other than a favored few, radio did not pay very well. Mm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and look, I, 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 look, I suspect that is probably the case um, everywhere, that, that um, there are different t- – and, and it's, it's like um, – like all jobs, I suppose, there's different kind of tiers yeah. of it. And, and, and then those, yeah. um, there are those ones that are at the, the kind of the, the top in terms of national, nationally syndicated programs and those ones. And it does kind of go down from, from there. But I mean, I, I, I absolutely loved my time working in, working in radio because it is just, it, it is such a, such a thrilling environment to be in where things can change in an instant <laughs> where where all of a sudden a story can break that that no one is expecting and, and every plan that you have for what you are going to be kind of covering is dropped and there is there's no kind of greater feeling than seeing that board light up with calls about all reporting kind of what is happening whether it's this big kind of major news event that's 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 going on and it it is a, a pretty amazing feeling to be part of that. And so I probably, I do actually miss that, that kind of, um, that kind of thing, but I've also discovered something that I love just as much, <laughs> possibly even more, which is, uh, which is writing novels, which works at a very, very different pace. And this was, that was one of the pieces of advice that, um, that someone uh, gave me who had made that, that same transition from, uh, from radio into publishing. They said, look, 
what you need to know, radio, you are used to hourly deadlines or uh, or even even shorter publishing. Everything moves very, very slowly that you are dealing with months and months until you're not. And then all of a sudden it can move very quickly in the space of a, um, in the space of, of kind of a couple of days, but just that you need to get, get your head around that and be prepared for a bit of a shift in the way you, uh, in the way you operate. And I've got to say, actually quite comfortable with the idea of having a, a few months to write a, uh, to write a book instead of having to, to, to pump out the content in an hour or so. So how to be remembered, uh, was published in Australia. When did it come out? Uh, it came out in March of this year. And then the U.S. pub date is? Uh, yes, it was on uh, June 27th. Okay, okay. Yep. So it's it's been out for a few weeks now. And then uh, the other uh, the other markets around the world uh, kind of uh, spread out over the next probably two years. So honestly, if you started writing this in early 2020 and it was already published early 2023, that's pretty fast in publishing. That is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and 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 again, I need to keep reminding myself of how kind of fortunate I am that that a lot of people will have kind of other manuscripts that that kind of sit in the drawer for a decade or more, or they'll keep on kind of tinkering with it and and kind of getting it to that um, to that point. Uh, so I, I I do need to keep reminding myself that this this is a pretty extraordinary run that I have had over the last few years, and it doesn't it doesn't happen very often. Well, and, and kind of when I when I sat down to to write this book, I, I I honestly didn't know whether I could do it because I I had I had not attempted to write a novel before, and as as I mentioned before, all of my writing had been factual content and very short form, and I didn't know whether I would be able to suddenly build out these characters, make them feel real and, and create something entirely in my head rather than just use reference material, something that is happening somewhere else in the city and, and kind of describe to you what's happening. I was having to describe what's happening in in my imagination essentially and then and, and put that on the page and then make it grouping enough that you will want to stick with it for 90,000 words. And so I, I kind of got it through a thousand words and okay, this is, this is going okay. I thought I'll know pretty quickly whether or not it's, it's actually going to, to work, whether I'm able to adjust my writing style sufficiently in order to, to do that. And uh, I got through a thousand words, then 5,000 words and 10,000 words. And all of a sudden I'm like, yep, this is, this is, this is going well. And I got to the end. I'm like, well, I think, I think I've actually written a real book here that, 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 these, that these characters are actually people that I want to keep spending more time with and that they have, that the story that I wanted to tell has been told through this, through this book. I thought this is, this is fun. This is great. <laughs> now at the same time you were starting a podcast company. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, so how that, does that work? That was that was um, essentially while I thought um, because I was writing the book without uh, knowing whether it would sell and assuming that that it probably wouldn't. I was very optimistic about um, about all of that. So I thought I'm going to need something else uh, while I'm going here to um, to keep paying the mortgage and to uh, to be able to uh, eat food and and other essentials uh, that um, that we're going to need to kind of keep paying the bills. And so uh, with a, a couple of um, former colleagues uh, from radio and, and one from uh, the world of newspapers, we uh, we set up a, a podcast company called Fear and Greed, 
which is basically, it's based on business news. It is talking about its daily episodes of business news about what's happening uh, in finance and what's happening in politics as it relates to, to money and all of this. And so I have, uh, and over the last kind of three years, it has, um, it, it has gone very, very well um, that it's, it's really found a, found a, a fairly strong audience here um, where it's, it's kind of recording millions of downloads a year um, across that, um, across that space. Which is which is fantastic. Uh, the thing is, I don't actually know that much about business or business <laughs> news, uh, and but I'm partnered with someone who knows this intimately. That he has been a business journalist for uh, decades, and has run uh, some of the biggest uh, newspapers and the most prestigious newspapers in Australia um, that are all about about business news. Um, and so I'm essentially asking him questions spectacularly ignorant questions at times um, about um, and in doing so it makes business news and and, and money quite accessible that it, it's not it's it's kind of getting rid of some of that jargon and the things that, that you hear some of these terms and okay I, if I don't know this intimately then I'm not going to be able to listen to it it's not the case that we found that niche of making it simple and accessible enough but still with enough credibility and so that we do that every day and that um, that comes out um, yeah, six days a week we have uh, have content uh, wow. being produced, and um, and it it it's going well, and that means then that that I've had that to to go on at the same time. So all of a sudden, I've gone from three years ago, uh, what nearly four years ago now, kind of working full time at a um, at a media company, to now kind of writing books and doing podcasts, and really. Uh, rarely leaving home, I have become a hermit. <laughs> essentially, I've, I, I, uh, I have, I have not left the home in quite some time, um, which I don't actually mind. And, and the fact that I can actually now spend time at home and um, see my kids, who uh, I didn't see a huge amount of them while I was working. They were very long days working in wow. working in radio, um, and so suddenly, okay, this is this is a pretty fantastic lifestyle and I am very, very lucky to be doing it. So I was looking at your website. Um, you have the fear and greed podcast and then fast five and another one. How do they afford that? So you're actually doing three podcasts. That's, that's right. Yes. Yeah. There's a few different, a few different titles that we have within there. It's, it's as we gradually expand and gradually take over the world of podcasts very slowly, very slowly. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that way we, we kind of, figure that we can um, access different markets and how do they afford that as personal finance, kind of budgeting your household budget and paying your home loan and paying your rent, all that kind of thing. So it's, it, it does kind of hit different, different, um, different markets and just means then that we're kind of more appealing to advertisers, which means then that we can afford to continue eating. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices and our guest today is Michael Thompson, author of How to Be Remembered. Michael, before we run out of time, can you read a little bit from the book for us? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Let me just uh, dig it out here. I um, I uh, thought I didn't quite know where to read from because it's one of those books that feels like it needs a lot of backstory. Like you need to understand kind of what's going on. But look, I think we've covered a fair bit, and that, that Tommy is is forgotten, and these and oh, the other thing actually I should mention, and I know we are running out of time, is that um that in I wanted to make sure that he didn't um we talked about the potential for this to be such a grim book and, and quite depressing. And, and so 
I wanted the place where Tommy grows up to be a very happy place. And, and so the, the most obvious place for me, for him to grow up, where a place where a child could look like he is just coming there every year fresh, even though he has been there for a whole lot of, uh, uh, quite a long period, but everybody has forgotten him, is essentially a, a group home, a foster home, where it would not be unexpected that kids come and go. Um, and in doing so, I thought, okay, there is a great risk here of falling into a stereotype of suddenly writing a kind of a, a, a Dickensian orphanage kind of thing where it's gruel every morning for <laughs> breakfast and hard, and hard labour after lunch. It's it's, uh, And I didn't want that. I, I wanted it to be, because otherwise that just compounds the misery of, right, of Tommy's right. life. And I thought, what if what if the place where he grows up is actually quite a happy place, um, that it is a, a group home and it is led by... Um, uh, Michelle, who is a, a quite an important character in the in the book, because she is she is just kindness personified, really. That she is someone who is able to almost kind of unconditionally love Tommy, almost as a child, even though she does not remember who he is each year and has to start again, and just welcomes him back into this home um, every year, thinking that he is in fact a new a new child. Anyway, that is quite a long pre- <laughs> that's a long preamble. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd read a short part of um, chapter four. So um, this is when he's still quite young at the, um, at the dairy, oh, uh, right. which is what the, uh, the group home is, is, is known. So, all righty. <laughs> For a boy whose very existence was defined by the unusual, the years that immediately followed the death of John Llewellyn, the man who'd taken him in, were surprisingly straightforward. It turned out that Tommy's greatest ally was bureaucracy itself, a monstrous web of government departments and public servants that reduced children in the care of the state to names and numbers on a page. In Tommy's case, that page was erased as the calendar rolled from January 4 to January 5. The scene the following morning played out the same way each year and once he was a little older, Tommy found he could predict how it would unfold with startling accuracy. Tommy, first a toddler, then a boy, then a gangly adolescent, would wake in his room, a bare room now that the previous night had contained a few possessions, a tattered picture book maybe, or as he grew, a notebook and pens in a hand-me-down backpack, a poster or two on the walls. The walls would be empty and those belongings gone, where Tommy had no idea. Then when he stepped out of his room, whichever member of staff spotted him went through a process that never changed. Oh, they'd say. <laughs> this was stage one, and it always started like this. But once the surprise wore off, they usually spoke in a soft tone as if reluctant to startle him or send him scurrying out the door. Only Glenda Riley refused to lower her voice. She probably wanted him to flee. What's your name? They'd invariably ask. At this point, they'd be assuming, reasonably, considering the facility's purpose, that he'd been dropped off at the door overnight. Second came anger, a call to child services, complaining about new arrivals being delivered unannounced with no documentation or references. Third, and this is where the bureaucracy helped out, was acceptance. Acceptance that after half a dozen calls to various officers in the foster care network, nobody really knew anything. And despite caseworkers promising to look into it and find out where this boy had come from, Tommy knew he'd be staying. The only exception to this routine had been the morning Tommy turned two. Nobody made any calls that day because with John Llewellyn deceased and Michelle Chaplin away, the house was largely staffed by temps who had no idea who was supposed to be there and who wasn't. But order was restored when Michelle at last came back. She'd always planned to return once she'd come to terms with John's death. 
After all, Milkwood House was her home and her charges were her children, even if the man she loved with all her heart was no longer there. She still spent too much time imagining what his final moments must have been like, keeling over on the driveway while closing the front gate. She wished she'd been with him when it happened, to help him or just to hold his hand so he didn't die alone. That was how Michelle remembered the evening, robbed of the too awful memory of John Llewellyn face down in the dust at the back fence. While Tommy howled in confusion in her arms, she had been there when John died, but any comfort she might have taken from that was collateral damage in the erasing of little Tommy. Her homecoming was a source of great relief to both Tommy and Richie, not that they discussed it. Richie didn't discuss anything with anyone, and as for Tommy, well, he'd been so young that he soon forgot why he didn't like Richie. All that remained was an unpleasant sensation whenever he saw the other boy, the bitter aftertaste of a child's fear. Miss Michelle gathered all the kids in the common room on her first day back with a solitary piece of very good news. Good morning, everyone, she said softly. Her eyes still looked a little glassy, although she hadn't cried for at least a day. It's good to see you all again, though I haven't met everyone yet, she added, smiling at Tommy, who had no idea what was going on. Now that John, Mr Llewellyn, isn't with us anymore, I'm going to be running Milkwood House. Tommy didn't know it at the time, but this was the single greatest thing that could happen to a two-year-old boy whose parents had forgotten he existed. It meant Tommy... It meant Miss Michelle would be the one to make sure Tommy had everything he needed each year when he started again with nothing. She'd rummage through boxes of left-behind clothes cursing softly to herself and would usually spend her own money to supplement whatever was missing. It meant Michelle was the one who accompanied Tommy on his first day at Upper Reach Primary, holding his small hand tight in her own as they walked through the gate, Tommy's stride getting slower and slower as they approached the classroom. It's all right, Tommy, she reassured him. I'll be here to pick you up when the bell goes this afternoon. You'll have a wonderful time. I promise. And it also meant Miss Michelle was the one the school called when they realised his enrolment form was incomplete. You can't come to school without a surname, the office lady told her, sounding almost panicked by the thought of a surnameless child loose in a classroom. What are we supposed to file his forms under? Michelle Chaplin, who'd been eating a chocolate biscuit at her desk in the dairy's office when the phone rang, hesitated. Okay, she replied, looking at the crumbs on her plate and the tea leaves clumped in the bottom of her cup. Perhaps if the call had come at any other moment, she might have chosen differently. But at that moment, it seemed the right decision. Besides... Although she'd only known Tommy for a couple of weeks, she could already tell he was a clever boy. If there was ever a five-year-old who'd be able to spell this name, it'd be him. Llewellyn, she said, and felt a little shiver of sadness steal through her. But somehow she thought John would be okay with it. She suspected he would have liked young Tommy very much. So in subsequent years, after emerging from his barren bedroom on the morning of his birthday, he introduced himself as Tommy Llewellyn to the friends who'd forgotten him overnight, never really noticing the flash of pain in Miss Michelle's eyes when she heard his name for the first time. Tommy was a boy who made friends easily, which was lucky as he had to remake them on January 5 every year. At first, he tried to convince the other kids that they knew him. After all, he knew who they were, so why were they looking at him so strangely? But every year, he was, great, he was greeted by the same blank expressions, and by the time he was 10, he realised he could avoid a couple of hours of funny looks and whispers about the weird new boy if he just introduced himself and did his best to slot back in. He still had questions, so many questions, mostly around why, but Miss Michelle hadn't been able to help him. In fact, she hadn't really understood what he was asking. So in spite of it all being rather strange, he just tried to get on with his life. But then, when he turned 14, something exceedingly ordinary happened to Tommy. Of course, given his fairly unique circumstances, even the ordinary was going to be problematic. 
Tommy Llewellyn fell in love. (laughs) And that was Michael Thompson reading from How to Be Remembered. And it's a, it's, it, and that kind of then sets us up. It, it is a love story after all. Yes. Uh, and, and this is the thing that it's, it's a um, love is the, is the motivator really. Cause he's, there's a lot of acceptance kind of for what Tommy's going through and love is the thing that, that kind of pushes him to go, okay, I'm going to find a way around this. I'm going to try and fix this. And, um, and that's kind of where it, uh, where it all takes off. Yeah. How did you, how did you decide on the title? Oh, naming a book has got to be the hardest thing. Actually, two things, naming a book and naming characters are the two hardest <laughs> things in the world. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the, the, the title, I love the title, How to Be Remembered, um, but it also kind of, there is a risk that it will end up on uh, self-help shelves as well. Uh, but, um, but I think that's, I think that's a risk that we're, we're kind of willing to take. It, it, it was not originally that title. There were, probably a dozen other titles that I've kind of toyed with. Uh, when you were writing it, what were you calling it? Ooh, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I was the working title. Yes. Okay. The working title was um, the reset. Okay. The working okay. title was that. And so yeah. it was just, it was just something to kind of get us through. Right. Um, and then, and then when it, um, then when uh, we, uh, kind of got to the point of uh, starting to talk to publishers, we changed it then. And I've, I've kind of had about a dozen different um, things that I was going with and, and how to be remembered. I thought it, it kind of, it, it is the story. It is a story of, of, of Tommy's quest to be remembered. And it does kind of imply there that it is, it do, he does find a way. That that's kind of suggested by the by the title mm-hmm. without any spoilers at all. Um, that um, that that there is hope, that there is optimism within the book, that he might find a way to be remembered, and it might not necessarily be the way that you would expect, or the way that um, that any any of us would think we would be remembered. Uh, so it's it's that's how I landed on that. Naming characters is is something as well that, that I think <laughs> I will. I will struggle with for life and, and that I have now actually um, got a system where when I'm writing, I will uh, text my wife and say, I need a, uh, <laughs> I need a name for a uh, 45 year old woman go. And that's all I'll give her. And suddenly I'll get um, kind of uh, Karen, Susan, and just all of these names, just one after the other, bang, 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 back on my phone. And I'll just go, okay, and done. Um, I'll just pick one of those at, at random and then hope that it doesn't line up with kind of one of my friends or one of, one of my family members or something that, uh, that will think I've then named the character after them. But it is very, very difficult to name characters. And I... Uh, which is odd to say that that's the hardest part of writing a book, <laughs> but it really is. You're going to spend a lot of time with these people. You want to make sure that you like their names. Well, as a journalist, that's not something you ever had to worry about. No, no. In fact, if you're making up names, you're probably not a very good journalist. Yeah, are you? yeah. <laughs> oh. So, so that's that's one of the uh, that was probably one of the, the the biggest kind of most surprising challenges that I was not expecting. So, Tommy, uh, and, and otherwise, you also so you must not know any Tommies. 
Uh, not really, no. <laughs> and, and and kind of, I didn't occur to me after until afterwards that my surname obviously is Thompson. Uh, that uh. it's probably almost too similar to that <laughs> as well. And uh, and uh, Sean, my wife, had actually wanted to. Um, she always loved the name for for a boy. Oh, we should have a Tommy, like Tommy Thompson. I really don't think we can do that. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't seem very fair to him, uh, and so we didn't. Uh, but um, but maybe that was how then it kind of uh, led into this uh, being the name. Of, there, and Tommy is probably the one name that never changed in the book. Oh, really? Tommy's, okay. Yeah. There is yeah, actually Tommy's a man named there. Tommy Thompson in Fairfield, Iowa, in our in my little town. <laughs> it is a cracking name, isn't it? It does. It stands out. Yes, you're it not going to forget a Tommy Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> So just we just have a couple minutes left. So just real quick, do you have a specific writing routine? Uh, you know, it's, it's changed a bit um, over time. I like writing early in the morning. I, I find that, that kind of 5 a.m. Um, is a pretty good time because there's no interruptions. There's no calls, no emails. Uh, the kids are generally still asleep at that time. Um, so it, uh, it means then there's, there's really no other, other demands on time. And, and, and when I'm writing, I'll try to write. Uh, somewhere between say one and two thousand words a day, um, and because I'm, I'm still juggling it uh, with um, the podcast work, which is essentially a full time uh, job, and so it, it's just kind of fitting it in around there. So yeah, early morning is typically the, the the time when I'm when I'm best. Although the closer you kind of get to deadline, the the more you kind of it right, just takes up right, yeah. more time and you fit it in wherever you write at night, you write on the weekend, you write, I've written in the car while my wife is driving and I'm sitting <laughs> in the passenger seat and the kids are in the back and I'm there just furiously still, um, still writing in the end. You just have to, to make the most of any time you can get. All on computer or do you ever write longhand? No, 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 all on computer. <laughs> I, I think, uh, because I, I do tweak a lot as I go along okay. and I don't know how you would do that on paper. Uh, uh, I'm constantly kind of adjusting bits and pieces. You cross things out, you make lines, you put, draw arrows. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. I'm a lot oh, older is, than you are, so that's the, how I learned. The, the funny thing is, though, that I I always take a lot of, of handwritten notes, uh, uh-huh. and and throughout kind of my my kind of career, I've always been um, a prolific note taker. I'm always taking notes, and they're always handwritten notes, and so I've got just doc uh, notebooks <laughs> and notebooks of filled with notes. Um, yet for this, it is just. It is computer all the way, and all I don't right. know why. It, it, it feels like I should be writing in notebooks. It feels like the author thing to do, um, but I, I, I can't bring myself well, to Well, it. it's what works for you. Michael, thanks so much for being with us today. We're out of time, and we need our closing words from Caroline. And thank you both okay. very much for uh, having me. Uh, uh, what, think, consider this. What if you woke up tomorrow and all you had in the world is what you had thanked God for today. And that's our closing quote. And thank you, Michael, for being with us. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye, everybody.